This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jim, we've done some great shows in the past year, but the one thing you and I are not always so great at is marketing. I know. We really got to talk to our listeners about becoming part of our crusade. Yeah, and one way to do it is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It's so important. Leave a comment. Give us a nice rating. That helps our visibility and helps bring more people into the How Do We Fix It movement. Five stars. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. On this show, we recap some of the high points and maybe a few low points. I got on a plane and a woman walked toward me. I recognized her, but I didn't remember who she was. She sat two seats from me and then she pulled out a huge folder that was stuffed with envelopes. And then I realized it was Ann Landers. I asked her if she would talk to me and she said, of course, dear. It was precisely in jail where my views changed. I began reading a lot, but also, importantly, I was imprisoned with the who's who of Egypt's jihadist scene. They try to shout me down, but I come from Brooklyn. I'm not going to be shouted down. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Sometimes, Jim, we get kind of earnest and geeky. Geeky. Oh, really? Us? (laughs) Yeah. We're serious folks. Yeah, right. But many of our favorite guests in 2016 kind of made us laugh and also surprised us a little bit with their opinions. Right. So for this show, we thought we would just go back and pull out some of the just the cool moments and, and little things that impressed us with some of our guests. And one of the standouts is Alan Dershowitz, right. who welcomed us to his New York apartment, which, by the way, has a great view of the East River you know, and Brooklyn and Queens beyond. You know, as you know, as the squishy libertarian on the, on the crew, I've always been interested primarily in civil liberties, and he's been such a passionate advocate for, for free speech and democracy throughout his very long career. So it was really cool to get to meet him. So for decades, he's been both celebrated and reviled as one of America's leading intellectuals. And I have to admit, Jim, going into this interview, I was a little concerned that he might be a little too practiced in his opinions, too scripted, but not a bit of it. No, no. And he loves this kind of banter. So we got right into it, asking what for so many people is the big story of the year, which is a question of why so many people supported Donald Trump. He was different. He was unpredictable. He was somebody who gave some people hope that maybe things won't be the same. The irony is that, and this is a hard statement to make, things are not bad. (laughs) They're not as bad as the passionate haters say it is. The, The poor in America, 
are better off than they used to be. Um, take, for example, Black Lives Matter. The number of African-Americans who were shot by the police unjustifiably has gone down dramatically since 1995 when I was involved in the O.J. Simpson case and the Rodney King case. So things have improved, but the perception out there, maybe because of the social media, is that they can't get any worse. I'm reminded of the definition of an optimist and a pessimist in Israel. In Israel, a pessimist is somebody who says things are so bad, they can't possibly get any worse. An optimist says, yes, they can. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think everybody thinks things are getting worse, and they're not. Alan Dershowitz, and we'll have more from him in a few minutes. But let's stay for a moment with why Donald Trump did so much better than most of us expected. We talked to marketing consultant Mark Earls about some of the psychology that underlies how we vote. We imagine that people consider in something as important as politics, the pros and cons, uh, the policies, the persona, but we don't really. Much of the time, we just choose what other people choose. Most of us fall into uh, established patterns, Uh, but it's the people in the middle that really count, Um, and that's where politicians are aiming. They're always wondering about momentum. Who are the people that people are talking about? Who are the people that people see other people moving towards? Um, So popularity is very often not the number of people who uh, see or know of something or vote for something. It's actually popularity is a function of what people see other people doing. And it shapes a lot of stuff in our in our lives from the names we give our children to uh, the brand of uh, cereal we buy for the morning. So what you're saying is, is that the way we make up our minds about politics and other things is not really the result of individual rational thought. Oh, it's absolutely not to do with individual rational thought. All you have to do is to read any of the below-the-line comments or follow a Twitter conversation um, where people engage with each other about politics, um, and uh, you'll see that it's very little to do with rationality. Um, people hear what they want to hear. Our minds are not these individual calculating things that perhaps we've been taught they are. So, you know, when Trump started this campaign, all the experts thought that he was too out there, too extreme, and really, in a way, too laughable to be taken seriously as a candidate. Is it possible that maybe he understands, in an intuitive way, the way that people think? I think that's absolutely right. He's much smarter than he gives, than we give him credit for. He gets that uh, people need to feel stuff rather than think about it that they get the impression of what he's on about rather than any particular policies. That's British marketing consultant Mark Earls, who is author of the book Copy, 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 and that was episode 42 from back last spring. Yeah, you know, we all love to think that we're rational, Richard, but behavioral economists and advertising executives know it's really just not true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that so many of our decisions are emotional, and I would like to think people are more rational than they really are. Well, you know, it's a big theme of the show all year has been rationality. We've talked to so many important things thinkers about separating emotion from really careful, rational thought. So the first step to having a um, 
a really honest conversation about policy is to admit to yourself that you might be biased, that you might be in a bubble. And one of our favorite guests, and I think one of the people that impressed both of us the most on this topic was Joan Blades. Yeah, Joan Blades is a progressive and the founder of a group called Living Room Conversations, which encourages people of very different viewpoints. For instance, you know, Tea Party members and progressives to get together in the same room right. and talk about these things. I love the way this whole thing started. She knows she's pretty left-wing. MoveOn.org, which she founded, is you know it's a pretty far-left organization in this country. And yet she also had this sense that she was missing something. So she reached out to one of the founders of the Tea Party, and the two of them started having conversations. And both of them realized that there is the possibility to find some common ground. In 2013, the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots I, and I co-hosted a living room conversation on crony capitalism. This is my Mark, Mark Meckler, right, right? Mark Meckler, yeah. I admit I was anxious. <laughs> this was my first time meeting him in person, but we'd been having phone calls with each other. And we really, I got a sense that he was a nice guy. And we wanted to try a living room conversation together. He came with two of his friends. I had two of my friends. And it was a wonderful conversation. We had a great time. <laughs> you know, by the time we were done, I liked Mark even more and I liked his friends. I had not realized that we're in fact in huge agreement when it comes to key aspects of criminal justice issues. In other words, there are way too many people in prison. We've got to start using evidence-based practices. The war on drugs has not been a success. Our lack of talking to each other has allowed us to be stuck for decades doing, you know, things that are really wrong. There's a great little uh, YouTube video on your website with Mark Meckler. I just want to play a little bit of an extract now. We got into a lot of things where there's common ground. It led us into a discussion of criminal justice reform, which we found there's incredible common ground left and right. I mean, who in this country thinks our criminal justice system is working well and the war on drugs has been a tremendous success? So one of those criminal justice issues was around forfeiture by police. Yes, I learned that we had a lot in common on this issue in 2013. And since that time, I've been learning about criminal justice issues. And forfeiture is one of those issues that just had my jaw drop. I couldn't believe the fact that we have law enforcement in the U.S. preying upon citizens taking their property without any kind of judicial process. And if you're a poor American, you can have thousands of dollars worth of property taken from you and you don't have the money to get it back because it requires legal representation. And law enforcement has been incentivized to do this because they get to keep the proceeds. Yeah, it's really an outrageous system. And I think, you know, you have seen, um, particularly on the libertarian side, a lot of pushback on it. But it's such a great example. Like, it seems like any any fair-minded person would look at this and say, you know, this is bad for all kinds of reasons that um, that both left and right can agree on. So we need both sides, you know, to work yes. together. And there was a lot of that kind of predatory policing. Actually, in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, yes. part of the backstory there was this very bad relationship between the public and the police because the police were a revenue center for that distressed community and, and, mm -hmm. and for the court system yeah too. and in not in a way that just was that was very very abusive 
everyone should be upset by this. It shouldn't be a partisan question. Maybe that's a starting point to other kinds of agreements, or at least more respectful disagreement. So with Joan Blades, we were talking about meeting people. And in June, Karen Firestone came into our studio to talk about risk. Karen's a successful wealth management expert, and she told us a story about something she learned from a chance meeting with a famous advice columnist. Now, I saw in your book, you met Ann Landers on an airplane flight one time. I did. What was that like? I did. It was the best. Um, I had a set of twins. I found out when I was five and a half months pregnant that I was having another set of twins. Wow. I thought I was having one baby again. And I really freaked out. I thought my career is going to be over. It's going to be unmanageable. What's the rest of my life look like? It's a disaster. I mean, I love kids. I do. But I just didn't think I could manage all of that. I got on a plane and a woman walked toward me. I recognized her, but I didn't remember who she was. She sat two seats from me. And then she pulled out a huge folder that was stuffed with envelopes. And then I realized it was Ann Landers. I asked her if she would talk to me. And she said, of course, dear. And what advice did she give you? Well, the advice was that there was a tremendous risk that... I would be unhappy if I couldn't continue with my career. And if I was unhappy, then my family would be unhappy. So the risk was creating the right environment where we would all be comfortable. Me and my career, my husband and my children with the kind of environment that we created for them. Which brings us to Keo Stark. She's the author of When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. There are genuine emotional benefits when we connect with strangers. There's an amazing power in being seen. We live in cities, we don't see each other. And when you are seen, when you notice that someone is acknowledging you, it's a momentary bond and What you call fleeting intimacy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we all have a need for intimacy. And there are pieces of intimacy that we can only get from the people we're very, very close to. Then there are the parts of intimacy that are connectedness and belonging. And you get those from these brief acknowledgments. You get a brief sense of being connected to other people. Is there an example in your life of how talking to a stranger made a positive impact on your life? One time, um, my partner and I were at a hackerspace in Philadelphia, and one of the people who was there said, you know what, I have all these pinball machines at my house. Do you want to come over and play pinball? And we did. And it was weird because there were also like a laundry line with wash drying, but he in fact had four amazing pinball machines. And so that's how we spent our afternoon in Philly. So from pinball machines in Philly to a jail cell in Cairo. Majid Nawaz is one of our favorite guests of 2016. He sure was, yeah. Uh, A British-born Muslim who fell into radical extremism, Islamism, in his teens, but today is a very outspoken opponent of radical political Islam. And what's amazing is his journey into Islamism took him to Egypt as a young man where he was arrested soon after 9-11-2001. Yeah, and he wound up in prison serving a five-year sentence in Egypt. But it was that time in prison that actually opened his mind to a different viewpoint, a more tolerant, open-minded worldview. It was precisely in jail where my views changed. I began 
reading a lot, uh, a traditional Islamic theology, uh, books on politics, English literature, but also importantly, I was in, imprisoned with the, the who's who of Egypt's jihadist scene. And I began debating and discussing with everything from the assassins of Egypt's former president, Anwar Sadat, who was killed in 1981, all the way through to through the Islamist spectrum, all the way through to uh, liberal and communist political prisoners. And it was really those five years, because I was only 24 when I was arrested and, and detained. It was a form of a second degree for me. I really matured and grew into the man uh, that I am now through those years in prison. The key point for me was the more I studied traditional uh, Islamic theology, the more I realized that theological disputes that we as Islamists were prepared to overthrow governments for um, and embark on war policies under so-called caliphate for were disputes that were historically debated in the pages of books between theologians politely. So I realized the sheer breadth of Islamic theological pluralism that existed in our history. And so I came out realizing what had been sold to me as my faith, Islam, was in fact a, a modern totalitarian ideology that borrowed much of its ideas of a super state with a super people, with an expansionist foreign policy. Much of that was borrowed from post-World War I European fascism, which entered the Arab world through Arab socialist movements and was eventually imposed upon the religion of Islam. And when I was able to make those distinctions um, and realize that Islam, like any other and all other religions, is nothing but what its followers interpret it to be. And it's been interpreted in, in as many ways as there are followers. Um, I was able to then, after that realization, distinguish the totalitarian ideology uh, that is an offshoot of Islam that I call Islamism from the normative faith itself. And when I came back to the UK in, in 2007, I, I could no longer advocate uh, uh, nor subscribe to the Islamist ideology that I'd adopted at 16. Majid Nawaz, both a critic of the left and of the right on how they talk about Islamic extremism. Majid says there's a huge difference between Islam, the faith, and Islamism, the ideology, and totalitarian political dogma. He's fighting to break those two apart. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs, and we're recapping our highlights of 2016. Another guest who's fighting some of the trends of history and maybe in a somewhat more lighthearted way is Eddie Alterman, the editor-in-chief of Car and Driver magazine, who, full disclosure, is an old... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
pal of mine because we worked together. Yeah. Uh, and we went to Eddie to talk about the rise of self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. Yeah, we- that, that so many companies have been pursuing and, and has this whole trend has been largely celebrated in the media. Right, and he has a very contrarian take. But what's interesting, what's driving this trend, he says it's not really about cars, it's about data. The autonomous car is a very inelegant and very complex and very fraught solution to the problem of texting while driving and information coming into the car while people should be driving. And um, to me, it's no coincidence that the rise of the smartphone, the rise of texting has been met with this solution. And not surprisingly also, the solution is at the hands of the data giants who are colonizing the car, you know, through Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, um, trying to get as much information about drivers as possible. I think the big data companies look at it as a way to take more of your time, to up your productivity, to keep you working. Um, And I think that's a bad thing. Well, you know, there was a big McKinsey report last year about the future of the self-driving car. And they talked about that 26 minutes, a typical commute, and how valuable that time would be to those data giants. They estimated that for every additional minute that people spend online in their cars would be worth about five billion dollars globally in that's right digital media revenues that's right they want you submitting data they want to deliver ad messages to you eddie alterman with car and driver magazine trying to put the brakes on autonomous driving alice drager is an historian who studies the history of medicine and sexuality she wrote the book galileo's middle finger about how political ideology often interferes with scientific debate especially in the social science yeah she has a personal example which led her to resign as a tenured professor and before we play the excerpt from the show trigger uh, warning yeah there's a there's a little sensitive material coming up um alice says that Universities are threatened by politicians from the outside, in some cases conservative Republican governors, and... We also see the problem within the universities of the ideological bubble where you have this sort of rampant, um, it's not even progressivism, it's sort of this knee-jerk liberalism that causes people to shut each other down on the basis of you're making me uncomfortable. And that I think is tremendously dangerous. When I resigned my position from Northwestern this past year, I think I was having a sort of side effect of that, which was my my dean decided that the stuff I was saying might upset some people, and so he censored my work. And, you know, I can't work in systems like that, but the result is it means there's no safe place for people like me to do work. Um, I now live off of a patron, but also my own income from writing and speaking. And so I'm, I'm a scholar living outside the system because the university systems are not even safe anymore. Can you talk about that more, actually? Sure. How do you feel about the word blowjob? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I read that paper. You published a paper by a man who had a spinal cord injury. And yeah, you, can, in- you can take it from there. Sure. So this, this is Bill Pease, who's actually a cultural anthropologist at Syracuse University, and he happens to be a paralyzed man. He was writing about the experience he had when at the age of 18, he became paralyzed from the waist down. And he was talking about his experience in a rehab hospital. And in the 1970s, rehab hospitals were new things. They were very experimental. They were also long term. So people developed long term relationships. And he tells the story about how at the age of 18, he's asking all these questions about his sex life and the doctors have no answers. They won't answer him. They don't know the answers. And so, uh, 
there were nurses there who sometimes had sexual relationships with some of the male patients who wanted that. They didn't all do this, but he tells the story of one nurse providing him oral sex in order to reassure him that he could still have sex. It's not a sexy scene as he describes it. He had just lost bladder control. He had hit the nurse button to have help changing the sheets. He's crying and she knows he's upset about his sexuality. So she goes down on him and he says that that moment I knew I was going to be okay and that someday I was going to be able to even be a father, which he (sighs) did end up becoming. But my dean found this essay, this first person essay, so incredibly upsetting. He gave an order to pull it offline and remove it from the system. And I tried for 18 months to talk him out of it because I said, I have this book coming out on academic freedom. And then the book did come out. And I said, I now have a major book on academic freedom. I've asked you to undo the censorship. I can't be a hypocrite. And so I finally did just resign. I can't work in a system where I can't publish things that upset people. So obviously, Alice Drager is someone who's not afraid to shake up the status quo and say things that might upset a lot of people on both sides. That's a big theme of our show. It's okay to... to disagree it's okay to be a little bit upset but and and even okay to be obnoxious in academic settings Uh, where you know you're supposed to be kind of going through things that might make people uncomfortable in order to discover the truth the progress of thought of science is all about challenging the conventional wisdom so back to alan dershowitz someone who's done this his whole long and illustrious (laughs) career he's upset a lot of people over the years and i asked him about that we talked about some of the extremists on college campuses With your lifelong support of Israel, you've come in for a lot of criticism yourself. What's that like? Well, more than criticism, I've had to have armed guards accompany me at some universities. When I spoke at Johns Hopkins University, students walked out saying I was harassing them by refusing to state that Israel commits war crimes. In other words, I harassed them by my silence. That's a new one even for me. So everywhere I go, I am booed, protested. They try to shut me down at the University of California. They try to shout me down. But I come from Brooklyn. I'm not going to be shouted down. I just outshouted them, and people stayed and listened to me. But there is an attempt to shut down liberal points of view on college campuses. Remember, the liberals are the greatest enemy of the hard left because we represent views that students and other people who are liberal accept, but we don't go to the extremes. So how do you deal with hecklers? How do you shout them down? I demand the opportunity to exercise my free speech. I allow them to heckle and boo, and uh, I say I'm going to stay as long as you want me to stay. I'll answer every single question. No one will be shut down. I usually say only critical questions on this line. No friendly questions. I prefer critical questions. I want to be asked the hardest questions. Alan Dershowitz speaking before we shut down. So, Richard, we had so many great guests on the show this year. And, and, and as we went back and just were reviewing a lot of the, uh, the shows, it just it made me really pleased to be working with you on this project with Miranda, our wonderful producer. And I really feel like we always talk, we always come back to this idea of honest, open-minded conversation. It's okay to have disagreements, but we have to respect each other. I hope we've been something of a model for that over the past year. <laughs> I'm so Uh, We're going to be hearing from more guests and hopefully having one or two more disagreements in the next show. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies, our producer, Miranda Schaefer. The show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Hey. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.